March 28, 2017, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar with Jason Corburn, a professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning and School Public Health at UC Berkeley. Professor Corburn directs the Institute of Urban and Regional Development and the Center for Global Health Cities. His talk was titled, Health and Urban Resilience, Understanding Health Equity in the City. The seminar was moderated by Quinton Maine, Associate Professor of Public Policy at HKS. around the repealing of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, there really couldn't be a, a more appropriate time to have a conversation about health and the city. Um, so what exactly do, do I mean by health in the city and what we'll be talking about today in terms of health in the city? Well, two things actually. Uh, first, uh, I mean the health impacts of living in the city and in particular types of cities or rather in particular types of neighborhoods within cities. Importantly, though, uh, what I also mean is the health impacts brought about by the wide range of policies and programs that our cities have at their disposal and leave their imprint on and preside over every day. Given the debates over the past uh, decade or so around healthcare and the extent to which our collective gaze has been trained upwards to DC and Washington, focus sometimes, frankly, with despair and frustration on the back and forth between the federal branches of government, it is easy actually to forget the far-reaching effects that local governments can have on health outcomes. This is not to say, of course, that federal or even state action is unimportant in this area. It's actually critically important that local government action, or as often is the case, local government inaction, is a crucial part of the health jigsaw. Cities make decisions and design and implement programs across a wide range of policy areas that have significant direct, but also, and this is what's important here today, significant indirect consequences on health outcomes. But calling these effects indirect is actually a little misleading. An important reason, I guess, we are tempted to think of them as indirect is because of the policy cleavages and administrative silos that characterize the modern state whether it's at the national or local level. So by this logic, health and public health departments and programs have direct effects on health, but the effects of policies generated by non-health departments, by officials who deal with, say, education, or business licensing, or amenities, or transit, are thought of as indirect. Uh, the question of health in cities forces us, though, to challenge this kind of thinking. It drives us towards a form of silo-busting, problem-oriented policymaking, where health sits at the very center of government action. Local governments are at their most effective in addressing the health needs of their citizens when they come to an understanding that joined-up, coherent programming across multiple city departments can have profound effects. City governments exercise significant zoning and land use powers, which affects what kinds of houses get built and where they get built, whether and where parks exist, how much tree coverage there is, the location of stores that sell food with high nutritional value, and the amount we walk. Through business licensing and development subsidies, governments also influence the number and types of polluting firms located in our cities and the kinds of jobs these firms create. Higher paying jobs that provide citizens with disposable income to buy healthy food 
and that reduce levels of anxiety and stress that come from economic insecurity. Through policing, city governments can impact the level and types of violence in the streets as well as the prevalence of domestic violence. And finally, through the design of the schools they build and run, combined with the teaching and non-teaching staff they employ and train, city governments can have a profound impact on helping to shape norms and values about and around diet, exercise, and stress management. In other words, cities really are very important for health. They affect the quality that we breathe, the food we eat, how active we are, how likely we are to be bodily and psychologically harmed by violence, and of course the ease with which we are able to access health professionals. In cities outside the United States, some actually may have more power to affect health outcomes, and of course some may have less power. But the basic point stands, thinking about the question of health and cities forces us to think differently about how local government should do its job, and about how to break down administrative silos and reorganize state power around the problems at hand, rather than historical legacies. The second major challenge of the issue of health and cities poses for the status quo is the ways in which it brings uh, to mind or exposes the central importance of community mobilization, community organization, and ultimately community power. Given the legacy institutions and administrative procedures that make up local governments, Getting health in the agenda beyond the traditional public health approach requires activism and even agitation on the part of local civil society. It also requires civil society to overcome its own internal divisions and in some ways, that in some ways actually reflect the divisions and structures of the local state. Given the scale of the silo-busting realignments required of state structures, these are unlikely to come from within. Instead, they must be encouraged and even demanded from without. In the short and medium term, civil society might actually end up serving as the shining example and template for what it means and looks like for existing capacity to be reoriented around the problem of health. This means community groups and organizations representing different populations, different parts of the same city, different policy areas, etc., working through their differences, differences about housing, differences about education, differences about policing, differences about transit, and balancing their interests in these various areas in the pursuit of better health outcomes for all. Sadly, in the United States and elsewhere, it seems like we've actually only begun to scratch the surface of the health potential of cities. Richmond, California is at the very cutting edge of this process, and it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Jason Corbin, to the Ash Center today to talk to us about the innovative work that the city and a range of social partners and community organizations have been doing to bust silos, to break down policy parochialism, and to build community power in and around the area of health. Professor Corbin is a leading scholar of health and environmental policy, and his work focuses on issues of urban environmental justice and health justice. He is a professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at UC Berkeley, as well as a professor in the School of Public Health there. He directs the university's Institute of Urban and Regional Development, as well as its Center for Global Healthy Cities. In addition to his work on environmental and health justice in American cities, Professor Corbin works on these same issues in cities in Latin America and Africa, including important research on informal settlements and health equity. During these different strands of this research, this afternoon, Professor Corbin will be talking to us about the issue of health and the question of health equity, not just in Richmond, California, but also in Nairobi, Kenya, and Medellin, Colombia. 
So with all this said, please could you join me in welcoming Professor Corbin to the Ash Center. Okay, great. Thanks, Quentin, and it's great to see some old friends, and um, can people hear me? I can talk loud. I don't think I need this mic, but I'm good. Okay, good. So um, I'm going to talk about a little, uh, maybe false advertising. I'm going to talk a bit about Richmond, but also situate the work we're doing uh, in Richmond, California, also in the context of a couple of other cities, uh, Medellin in, in Colombia and Nairobi, Kenya, to kind of think comparatively about urban health uh, and health equity today. And uh, I want to make the case that, uh, as hopefully many of you affiliated here uh, are thinking about, well, how can cities really rethink uh, governance? Not just urban governance, but governance uh, more, more generally, and particularly with a sharp focus on inequities and health equity. And I'll explain what that means. Um, and I'll try to make the case that really thinking about innovation in urban settings is often about innovating around how to, to be more inclusive and focus on equity. It's not necessarily about new technologies. Um, but the idea of adaptation, borrowed from kind of ecosystem management, is a really important uh, concept in much of this work. Uh, it says we can't wait until we have the solutions to intervene. We have to learn by doing and monitor and track and adjust as we go. Uh, and again, the idea is how do we rethink this notion uh, of governance and, and the role of both civil society, state institutions, science, technology, uh, and a new politics uh, for the city. So I don't have to make this case, hopefully, for you, but we are on an urban planet. Uh, and that, what that means for me uh, is that, for example, global health is urban health. Urban pu public policy needs to be urban policy. Um, and I'm a, this is my bias since I'm an urban planner. Um, but cities are growing. We have an urban planet. We have rising inequality in cities. And the good part of that story, I think, from my perspective, is that cities can be really healthy. And they have over time, for some people, depending on where you live. So the urbanization of the planet can be great for health and for inclusion, for new forms of politics, for new kinds of innovation, for new uh, kinds of uh, uh, discoveries. But this kind of situation is what I call urban malpractice. This is in Sao Paulo, where we have an informal settlement on your left. And the folks living on this side, of, on the left-hand side of the fence, are you know, cleaning the pools and taking care of the children of the wealthy residents on the right-hand side. And this kind of drastic juxtaposition of great wealth and great poverty and inequality is increasingly the fabric of cities, not just in the United States, as we've had for generations, but around the world, cities growing around the world. So how can new governance, new engagement between civil society organizations, uh, local government, uh, new forms of innovation and, and ideas really uh, address this, this challenge? Now, we're in a moment where this is kind of coming to, uh, hopefully, uh, high priority globally. So not just in the United States. Um, some of our leading journals are asking, you know, are we really paying attention to urbanization and its impacts on well-being? 
Uh, and, and what does that really take? That, that's not going to be done in someone's lab, necessarily. Um, and we just, as you probably, some of you know, just had the Habitat 3 conference. I told my kids I was going to the Urban Planning Olympics in, in Ecuador this past October. But this was really the, what they call the new urban agenda. Where are we going for the next 20 years around urbanization? Uh, what are the priorities? And out of that came 170-something um, priorities. So basically everything, and, and, and which kind of means nothing at all. And that, so that's problematic. Um, but the idea of global health and urban health coming together, global governance and, and urban health coming together, is, is on the, the agenda, particularly also with the new uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so if we're going to reach those goals, or even come close, we need to pay attention to cities, rising inequality in cities, uh, and I will argue the health uh, and health equity uh, in cities. So uh, as Quentin said, I gave the talk this morning uh, focused primarily on Richmond, and I'm happy to talk for hours and hours about Richmond, California, which is here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's part of a regional uh, equity strategy includes Alameda County and Oakland and the city of San Francisco. Um, but I want to put the, some of this work in a, the context of other work that uh, I'm doing in, in Medellin, Colombia, and in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, because I think there's some similarities and, and, and lessons to be learned across all three sites. But let me start with Richmond. Richmond's a kind of the Pittsburgh of the West, an industrial city, uh, fairly small by you know some East Coast standards, but uh, majority community of color with a really rich history was the terminus of the transcontinental railroad, the Kaiser shipyards built, the war ships for World War II in Richmond, which brought thousands, tens of thousands of African Americans to Richmond to work in the shipyards. Um, lots of tension there, early tension uh, over labor, civil rights issues uh, around the shipyards. Housing was built. Um, to house the workers in during the war period, and some most of that housing still exists today. People are still living in it, uh, and it's a pretty poor quality. It's also a sanctuary city in the Bay Area, uh, with very very uh, high population of undocumented uh, folks, and these are folks from all over Central uh, uh, America primarily, and also um, uh, uh, Asian uh, immigrants. Um, it's an important. Uh, there's two other things I want to highlight. One is that it's a, got a strong city manager form of government, uh, which makes some of the work we've been doing now, I think, possible. We talked a little bit about that this morning. And we focus on public health in a way that I'll describe in a second in a city that doesn't have a health department. And I think that for us that's been an, actually an important um, both opportunity and challenge that we've faced. Now, much of the work in Richmond started from activists environmental justice groups in the 80s and 90s protesting a Chevron refinery that's right in their backyard, uh, and coming together to do, to build coalitions. These two reports are of coalitions of six, seven different uh, nonprofit groups to try to document the living conditions that folks, primarily folks of color, were facing and continue to face in some, some ways uh, in Richmond. And what they documented were their high-priority issues. And, and almost at all the reports, the number one issue, or the top three issues really, number one was crime, gun violence, street level gun violence, and the fear uh, that that kind of had on cascading into the community. Environmental health, air pollution, 
quality of streets, quality of parks, quality of neighborhoods um, was number two. And three was often around uh, housing and uh, opportunities for affordable, uh, stable, uh, and quality housing. So really, the work in Richmond emerges out of community concerns uh, to both document their conditions and to redefine the way um, they wanted to live in Richmond. And one of the first things we did in partnership with community organizations was to document health outcomes spatially and put it in a comparative perspective. So here you're seeing the entire um, East Bay. Uh, this is Berkeley and Oakland here, Alameda County, here's Richmond up, up here. Uh, and what we were able to document, and if you look at every health outcome, heart disease, cancer, low birth weight, um, the worst outcomes, some of the worst outcomes were concentrated in a few, in this case, zip codes. Here's East Oakland, West Oakland, and Richmond. And importantly, that's a little bit clearer than earlier today, um, life expectancy was the lowest in these same communities. So how was it, community folks were asking that, just living a few miles away in the hills as opposed to right here um, in Richmond or in East Oakland, was I going to die 15 years earlier? What was going on? It couldn't be just health care or my lifestyle, could it? Uh, and we said, no, it's not, actually. And in fact, those inequalities were also tracked um, by race and ethnicity. So this is an example um, of uh, life expectancy for uh, whites and African Americans. And you can see that while everybody's living longer, the disparity, the difference between whites and African Americans is growing. And that trend was continuing. And that continues. And that's really what we were aiming to close, close that gap to address health equity. So how did we begin to do that? Well, we had an opportunity, and community groups were participating in a land use planning process in the city of Richmond. In California, every city, by law, has to update uh, their general plan. And um, at that point, no general plan had ever done anything around health. There's seven required elements in the state of California that have to do with housing, transportation, land use, uh, energy, things like that. But again, the community priorities, and in every community meeting, and pushing back to all the consultants who are running this, saying, we want to address violence. We want this plan to address environmental health. We want this plan to address these health inequalities that, that we're experiencing. Uh, and so we got together as a coalition of community groups and some regional partners, including uh, from San Francisco and UC Berkeley, and came up with the idea of putting a chapter, what was called an element, up for public health or health equity into the general plan. Well, this had never been done in the state of California, and it was an experiment, really. Uh, and we, actually, we were successful, and we, we drafted that element in partnership with communities. And the way we did that was by asking, starting the process by asking, how do you define a healthy community? Uh, how do you define health in your community? And gathering that information, documenting from the kind of population health level that I just described, but also from the community's perspective and different perspectives. Also part of that process was changing the narrative about health in Richmond, both with residents and with uh, folks who were doing governance. Now we tend to, is there a pointer here? No. We tend to think about health, and you know, for those of you in public health, this 
should hopefully be a review, but we think about health and health policy as down here on the right-hand side. See if clinician, health education, health, change your behaviors. You know, you're, you're not eating well, your diet's not great, um, you know, you're, um, you're stressed out, get some help. Um, and so this is what we call the medical model, and this is what we describe as where health ends, not where health begins. In fact, this is disease management. And this is a, somewhat of a critique of public health, and I can do that because I'm in a school of public health, too. Um, what we wanted to focus on is what we call the upstream drivers. This is where we believe policy, cultural change, planning, community features influence health. So this is where we think health begins. This is really public health. The right-hand side, that downstream, is disease management. And this includes things like community organizing and power, policy building, and changing the narrative of um, things like structural inequalities and structural racism. And this is where um, we, we began to talk about with community representatives, with leaders in the city, with regional leaders, about the role of health and health equity in uh, urban policy and decision-making. The second framework that really shifted the focus of the work we were doing in Richmond is that every community meeting, or when we did community uh, participatory research, and, you know, there wasn't a person who said, you know, I'm just concerned only about air pollution, or I'm just concerned about potentially being evicted from housing, or I'm just concerned that the schools are not serving my young person, or um, we can't eat today. These were multiple, overlapping, everyday experiences, particularly for undocumented folks and folks of color in Richmond. And the, the idea is that these are cumulative burdens, and they're stressors. They're stressors on our bodies. And there's a lot of research uh, that supports this idea of adverse childhood experiences having uh, an influence over cognitive development, physical development, from in utero throughout one's life, throughout what they call the life course. So we began to use this model to replay, to retell what we were hearing from community residents about these multiple stressors they were over. So the, the brief biologic story is that stress is good. It's good for us. In, in bits, right? Uh, we're escaping from that uh, tiger that's going to eat us or from, you know, getting ready for that exam or, or that moment. And that triggers the hormonal release of things like cortisol and adrenaline. And then ideally there's that shutoff period. Now, in the, the constant stress in a neighborhood like enrichment is toxic because that hormone, hormonal release doesn't shut off. It wears away on the body's immune system. It also can contribute to those behaviors that in public health we try to get people to stop doing, like sm smoking or uh, eating too much or drinking too much or things like that. So the idea was we, didn't, we weren't satisfied with just behavioral change, and we needed a model that helped engage the community and engage policymakers. Um, and the, the, the science behind that uh, is really around this idea of toxic stress, and it, it has uh, multiple kinds of influences over the immune system, uh, gene expression, and a whole host of things that uh, are, are well, well researched, including right here at Harvard, uh, in, in the literature.
And we didn't stop there. We said, okay, how do you define the toxic stressors, community residents? And how can we put that into our policy documentation uh, and our planning documents? And so this was a multi-year process um, of, of doing these kinds of workshops and exercises and building that into uh, the initially the general plan and then uh, that led to this health and all policies uh, document and, and ordinance that I'll talk about in a second. Uh, the idea with the general plan was that we, um, we do plans, and as a planner, we, we, they're usually stacked up off the floor like this, and then they sit on a shelf and nobody pays attention to them. So we said, actually, could we take that health element and implement pieces of it and learn about what we can do and what we can't do to address these health inequities and promote health equity enrichment? So but we can't do the whole city. So why don't we drill down and focus on a particular uh, community and particular population, most vulnerable population. And, the, and so the idea, the kind of policy idea, which comes from harm reduction in, in, in public health as well, is, is the notion of targeted universalism. Uh, and the idea is that, uh, like the Americans with Disabilities Act, here's a, the example of a curb cut. My planners know curb cuts, maybe others don't. But the idea is that this was not required until policy changed. Uh, that folks with um, disabilities were able now to much more easily cross the street. Targeted strategy, targeted public policy. But of course there's universal benefits for many, many activities. So the same idea said, can we target uh, in a positive way neighborhoods and lift up particular vulnerable populations? So how could we do that with the implementation strategy? that we were working with. So we uh, focused on one neighborhood in Richmond called the Iron Triangle. And it's called that because of its history of having railroad uh, tracks on all three sides, uh, about 25,000, 30,000 people, 100% uh, folks of color. Uh, really a community that uh, under high stress, toxic stress, with uh, this right here is really the, the Chevron uh, refinery and the, the pollutants. And we started to do small incremental things that cost actually the city no money, like repainting streets um, and redesigning tennis courts to futsal or soccer fields, um, and things that the community defined as really important. And we knew they weren't going to get at the kind of structural inequalities of health equity, but they were important for keeping folks engaged and keeping them seeing the progress, again, learning by doing. We did things also that cost no money, which was to redesign parks. The city said, you can have the park community group. On the right-hand side is one called Elm Playlot. And uh, the community residents came together, formed their community coalition to actually redesign uh, and rebuild that park and a number of parks. And they actually were paid and trained to build the equipment instead of buying the equipment from outside vendors uh, and then uh, implementing that. And, and so these small changes began to build. But we realized during this process that there were important stakeholders that weren't at the table, including the school district uh, and the big health systems, Kaiser and the healthcare providers. So we reorganized the, the process into something called the Richmond Health Equity Partnership, which had this kind of configuration. Uh, and one of the key things we decided to work on in that partnership was a health and all policies document. This was something that was happening at the World Health Organization, had been talked about in the US and a couple of states, but had not been adopted. Uh, in, in law, 
in any place that we knew of at the time. So we, we embarked on an 18-month process with many of the new stakeholders and others, engaged the city, um, community organizations, uh, the county, again, is the healthcare, health public health services provider, and the school district is not necessarily part of the city, but an important player um, there, for example, feeding more people through the school system on a daily basis than any other institution uh, in, in Richmond. So they're a key health equity uh, provider. Yeah, sure. Excuse me? The media ecosystem? Yeah, we, we did it slightly. There's two things that happened. So we had um, a bunch of media coverage, including like, coverage in national media, New York Times and others, about the, the change that was going on in, in Richmond in terms of this focus on health and, and planning from the, from the health element. And then there, there's uh, something, a student run, so you know, there's, there's really no local media uh, in Richmond. It's mostly controlled, to, you know, in the Bay Area, pays very little attention to positive news, let's put it that way, in Richmond. Uh, but there's something called Richmond Confidential, which is a program of the journalism school at UC Berkeley, where student reporters attach themselves for a year, uh, embed themselves in the community, uh, and write articles, and that's an online publication. Um, and so that Richmond Confidential became one of the most important uh, media outlets through the journalism school. Uh, it's a good question. So what was the result of the Richmond Health Equity Partnership? One was the first municipal health and all policies ordinance in the United States. Uh, and we felt it was important to put this into law. It's got a strategy document uh, that documents what's the health equity goal, how are we going to measure it, uh, what's the short-term action plan, uh, what agency is responsible within the city, and what other partners uh, can participate, uh, and what's the direction of change that we want to reduce some inequity, to promote uh, something. And so this is all available uh, our website, richmondhealth.org, and all of the 18-month process and meetings, and um, these are some of the, the characteristics or the policies and things that were recommended. Many of them are being implemented and, and evaluated uh, now. Um, as part of the health and all policy strategy. So it was a multi-pronged, integrated approach that said, hey, city government, you can promote health through your existing institutions, through your hiring and through your leadership, through integrating, for example, putting health equity performance measures into your budget and your five-year budget plan, which we do, uh, all the way to economic development and land use decisions to... Uh, the work with the regional regulators in terms of air quality and, and environmental pollution and, and, and other things. I want to just talk about one uh, program that we set up called the Office of Neighborhood Safety. Now, I said violence was one of the most important issues. Now, Richmond in 2009 was um, the ninth most violent city in the United States, 42 murders uh, per 100,000 people. And um, so it was a priority of community residents. Police community interactions were bad, like in almost every city in America. Uh, lawsuits, police uh, racial profiling, and the rest. We took policing, or peacemaking, out of the police department. We wanted to change the face of the state 
particularly the city, in communities. So all many neighborhood folks saw about the government was violence, police violence, or the California Highway Patrol, or the FBI coming in with armored vehicles. That was their vision of government. So how could we change that? So we took peacemaking and created a new city agency. We've got the Parks Department, Planning Department, Housing Agency, Peacemaking Agency in city government. And now this was not easy, because the first thing we said to the mayor and the city council was we wanted to be all staffed by felons. People who were out of San Quentin, there were uh, many convicted murderers, because these were the guys, mostly guys, who could touch and reach out to the potential other uh, trigger pullers, as they were called, uh, in the community. And that was a very difficult negotiation because government generally does not hire people with a criminal record. We said we were going to focus high-intensity outreach to the known or suspected 30 or so um, young people who were suspected of being criminals. Now, if we see the evidence across the United States, it's not that much gun violence is random in neighborhoods or that it's randomly distributed. It's often highly focused in certain neighborhoods, even on certain streets, uh, and there's many repeat um, offenders. So the idea was to reach out to these guys. Many of them were, were almost all in the first couple of groups uh, of these 25 to 30 were almost all young men. Um, and have a high-intensity, what we call treatment, which was engagement, uh, with these former felons as what we call neighborhood change agents. And they became city employees who go and do street-level outreach to these guys. Now, the work that we've done, the Office of Neighborhood Safety, has gotten a lot of media, both good and bad, and you're, happy to, um, you're welcome to check that out um, and just Google it. You'll have no problem finding it. Uh, a couple of things about this program. One is that we asked for a $3 million budget, and the city council said, you're crazy. Then hire fans, and you're going to uh, go out and talk to them and enroll young criminals in a city program. We said, yeah, but one month of police overtime is costing you four hundred to $600,000. One gunshot, this is the police response, the EMT, the medevac to the hospital, to the ER, the social workers, the, all the work that has to be done, one shooting, two or $300,000. So this $3 million doesn't look so, so much. Two aspects of this program that um, I want to highlight, and then I'll move on from Richmond. One is um, James Houston and Sam Barnes are our neighborhood change agents. These are the guys who do the touch, touching and outreach to young people in the community. Uh, every day they're out there kind of mediating conflicts with a kind of ears and eyes on the street and engaging uh, with these folks uh, and, and, and also kind of helping them navigate to get some social services. The most kind of critical part of this people and place-based um, targeted approach is what we call a peacemaker fellowship. This is something where we pay these young people small amounts of money to engage in this what we call uh, seven touch points, so this life map, which is if they develop a life map, they engage in these programs, they accompany our neighborhood change agents to social services, they can get paid a small amount of money, a stipend, basically like the scholarship that folks here at Harvard get. Um, we wanted to say, let's give, give our guys scholarships. Um, up to $1,000 a month is the maximum they can get. 
Nobody freaks out about that. I mean, every headline you'll read about our program is city paying killers not to shoot. That's really not the point of the program. Um, the point is that these are young people who have been totally ignored and marginalized, and we said we're going to engage them as problem solvers in the, the challenge of violence and street level uh, change and neighborhood change. How successful have we been? Well, the program started in 2010. We have uh, uh, run a fourth cohort of, of folks. This is about the average cost. I told you we can pay these guys up to $1,000 a month. It's not even costing us that much. Uh, but people are engaged. 94% are still alive, most importantly. Um, many have no gun crimes. And the community health impacts uh, are, are significant. And for the mayor, and the city council, this is the headline that they want to see from the Contra Costa Times and the San Francisco Chronicle, Richmond, you know, uh, a generation uh, low in, in homicides. Um, in 2015, we were down to 11. I told you we started in 2019 uh, at 42. Here's New York City at 12. The most violent city in the world, Caracas, 119 per 100,000 uh, today. So a significant reduction in gun violence. Uh, we've had press and uh, attention to this work both locally, regionally, and, and nationally. And we're trying to measure, through health and all policies, the population health and health equity impacts uh, of the work that we're doing. We were lucky that the city manager uh, enrolled the city in, 20, in 2007, uh, 2007 in a um, biannual citizen survey that captures uh, over 3,000 residents and asks them a bunch of questions about their perceptions of place and neighborhood and a whole host of things. Uh, and this program has also really started to rebuild the kind of uh, life services of affordable housing, uh, economic opportunity, uh, reducing air pollution, reducing unemployment uh, that are really the, the drivers, you know, some of those key drivers. We've still got a long way to go, uh, but we've made significant impact on health equity uh, in Richmond. Let me give you two more quick examples that I think, again, focus on a targeted approach of both place and people to transform a city, uh, to make it a city for life. So Medellin, as many of you know, or, or hopefully should know, is you know, now the poster child for good urban urbanization, good urban planning, good urban governance globally, right? winning all of these awards, and has been for the last uh, couple of years. Um, and so we've been asking, what can we really learn from both the successes and the, the challenges that Medellin has faced? So also, this was the most violent city in the world in 1991, 395 murders per 100,000. You know how high that rate is. And in 2015, they were down to 20. How does that happen? Uh, an incredible transformation, not just of reductions in violence, but also a reduction in the physical and social landscape uh, of the city. So part of what they did was to say, we're going to invest in the poorest, most vulnerable, most violent communas, neighborhoods. This is what is now copied around Latin America, but is a cable car, Metro Cable, a, uh, basically a ski gondola, for those of you from New England, um, that serves as public transportation. 
So Medellin is a mountainous city, and it's got a valley, and then the uh, poor are living on the hillsides, uh, and have to either walk on steps or get a gang member to ride a motorcycle up the hill to, to deliver their uh, groceries or whatever it might be. The uh, Metro Cable First in the World was an innovation in the sense that it served the poorest and most violent neighborhood. Now, not only did it serve it in terms of public transportation, but around the stops, the stations of the Metro Cable, they built um, the city's most important public facilities, its most important public libraries, community centers, uh, a host of public investments in the poorest, uh, most violent neighborhoods. Innovation, they said, okay, we go to the mall, and there's an escalator at the airport to get up to the second floor. Well, we have a city that's on the hillside, and people can't, the poor can't get up to their houses. Why don't we take that innovation and put it into the public domain? Which they did. So now the escalators, um, this is what you're seeing here. It's like a tourist attraction. It is a tourist attraction. For those of you who've been there, you know, um, has radically transformed neighborhoods. Uh, people can um, get up and down, um, and um, it connects now to, in, in, in many communities, they built uh, like the most important um, cancer hospital in one of the poorest neighborhoods. Uh, and it, you, the best way to get there is through one of the uh, cable cars and the escalators. This is the um, example of uh, the award-winning, actually award-winning uh, library, and there's tens of these buildings. This is a library, actually, and it's surrounded by a public uh, space that is a market, a play space for young people, again, in the poorest neighborhood. It would be like saying, okay, we're going to build Boston's most important building in Dorchester, public building. Not in downtown museum, public library, hospital, not in the Longwood Medical Center, but in the place where uh, it is, is most uh, impoverished. They also have a unique situation in Medellin where uh, the public utility is part of the city and they had all of this space. These are water tanks that are holding uh, reserve water uh, up on the hillsides for the city. And they were kind of well in like most of the spaces you would see in the United States. A barbed wire fence, can't get in there. I said, could we launch a design process, a policy-making process that turned all of these into publicly accessible spaces? Again, often they were in communities with no public parks, no green space, no opportunities to connect people. So turning privately walled-off space into public um, spaces for play, for theater, for a whole host of things. And there's tens of these uvas all over uh, Medellin. They took the city's dump. This is the city's garbage dump. It was literally a mountain of garbage uh, and turned it into an ecological uh, study center to study about uh, urban farming uh, and recycling and um, capturing the off gas uh, from this facility and um, built or rebuilt a community around it and really sent a strong signal to the poor who were living around that community that this was an important place to live uh, and they, they were valued. Uh, and again, we see these are from 2002 to 2014. 
uh, changes in poverty, extreme poverty, unemployment, uh, and the Gini, all trending downward over this kind of 15 to 20 year transformation uh, of Medellin. But that is not perfect. This is just from a few weeks ago in Medellin of uh, in February and uh, March, air quality is declining and is actually in kind of a crisis moment now for the city. Um, even though they have wonderful public transportation, they have a metro, they have the cable cars, they have the escalators, they have a bus rapid transit system, and the only surface tram that goes up the hill uh, in the world. Uh, air quality is, is declining, so a big challenge that they're facing. Um, but for the city rebuilding to address this high level of violence post-conflict moment um, was really engaging residents to define what were the projects they wanted and to re and doing that in a public space, using public space as the way to um, reduce violence and, and rebuild the, the city. And what the many practitioners uh, in Medellin talk about the ethics of aesthetics, putting the most beautiful public facilities in the poorest, uh, most vulnerable communities. So again, a targeted strategy uh, that has had a kind of radical transformation of both people and places uh, in one of the most violent, or the most violent city in the world. And finally, um, the third example from Nairobi, which is work that we've been doing in partnership with a host of uh, non-governmental groups and the University of Nairobi and the local government about how do we transform informal settlements also into healthy, sustainable, equitable places. Um, this is just to situate you in, in Nairobi. We're going to be talking about work that we've been doing for, for a number of years in both Mathai and Makuru. You may have heard of Kibera, which is one of the um, most infamous uh, informal settlements in, in, in Africa. Um, and this is just to say, hey, we're doing better in terms of health. This is under five mortality uh, for, um, for everyone. But again, we still see that in, if you're living in a city where you live matters. Living in an impoverished urban informal settlement uh, or a slum, you still, still have the worst um, child mortality rate even compared to uh, impoverished folks living in, in rural areas. And this holds in many, many cities around the world. Now, the informal settlements or slums in Nairobi are not kind of homogenous. There's kind of diversity of both people, of built environments, of housing types. Uh, so it was really important for us to work with our partners to get inside and understand the community. This is informal electricity provision, and this is a health and equity hazard as people have to kind of tap into a wire that's on a, uh, a power pole and stream another wire to them. You get charged per light bulb in, in Nairobi, and uh, regularly, weekly at least, there are major fires from this, um, uh, these, these informal connections. Uh, water is a key health equity issue. This woman collecting water on the jerry can. What you don't see here is the social dynamic uh, around this. So there's a gang member, a youth cartel that's often controlling that water tap and when it's available, the quality of it, and how much it's going to cost. But what's important is there are lots of interest keeping this place informal and looking that way. There's a robust economy here, 
and there's a lot of people benefiting from that economy, uh, from the informal water suppliers, the informal uh, electricity suppliers, uh, the markets, uh, the informal uh, uh, alcohol brewing, a whole host of things that are, that's happening in these cities within a city. Now, what our partnership does and works with community uh, organizations to organize residents to make their situation visible and to change both the physical and policy uh, dynamics that are keeping them uh, in this situation. So it starts uh, often with something called micro-savings, which is different than micro-credit, which you may be familiar with, but some similarities in that people save small amounts, pennies per day, to really come together as part of a, a social uh, organization in the community. One of the first things they do is to make their living conditions visible. So many of these informal settlements don't show up on a map. Their living conditions, their health conditions, like in Richmond, are not documented. So what we do is we train residents to survey themselves. They only trust their own uh, neighbors. And they go door to door uh, with a survey, and then we physically map the place. So we literally put it on the map, although now with Google Maps uh, we can get the aerial images. And all of that feeds into a kind of network power organization. Because every village or neighborhood in one of these informal settlements is connected to another. They're connected across the city of Nairobi. And they're in a national network. Um, that's one of the organizations that we work with that shares uh, stories, they share expertise, and they share funds, in fact, from the micro-savings in a national network um, called the, the Kenyan uh, Slum Dwellers uh, Federation. And that federation um, is who kind of brings people together to replan the community, negotiate with the state, or protest the state, which I'll give you an example uh, of both of those in a moment. Uh, so again, this work has also um, gotten some, some international uh, coverage. Uh, and, and a lot of this work, these are our students from the University of Nairobi and UC Berkeley who are helping to train and work with our partners in, in Nairobi to do this data collection and literally put people on the map. And this is hard to see, but this is um, this is a, basically a GIS layer. Every little speck you see there is a household. Uh, and we can click on each one of these households and get a hundred uh, different survey question data points about who lives there, how much they pay for water, uh, you know, are these uh, churches or schools or what... The, and so this allows us to both do analysis of what are the hazards and risks according to uh, people, but also how do we plan uh, to improve the community, how do we avoid things like flooding from this blue line, which is a river. The first thing that we use that data for often is um, core infrastructure, housing, water, and sanitation and roads. And that's done, um, again, by residents designing, this is their dream house, uh, which is then built incrementally as they live in it. And in, in Mathai, they actually have a small business where they create the bricks themselves. So in the absence of the state, some of this money does come from foundations and comes from um, indirectly from uh, some of the infrastructure has been built by the World Bank. Um, but the housing itself is built by, by community residents as they live in it. Water and sanitation are key health risks. Uh, again, that the state is not providing services and people are paying uh, two to sometimes 300 times the rate that the formal city pays 
for the same amount of water, but poorer service. So we're able to map the distribution of those points, and we put this into context. What you're seeing here in this bar chart is all the neighborhoods or villages in one informal settlement. And these are the number of people per functioning public water point. And the red line is what's called the sphere humanitarian standard. So when there's a earthquake or a, a civil war or a tsunami, and you have to quickly rebuild a community, how many people does the humanitarian uh, standards recommend for people serving one public water point? Um, and that's about 250 in this case. And on the everyday living conditions, we have almost every informal settlement, every neighborhood you know, in excess of that, uh, sometimes you know, significantly more uh, in terms of water access. So what we were able to do with our data is to move from this is the, what they call spaghetti pipes of informal water lines just laid into uh, a muddy uh, pathway here to a design process with our engineers and, and students both in Berkeley and the University of Nairobi to the first piped in-home water service for over 30,000 residents in, in Mathare, uh, in, in Nairobi. And so it looks like this, where people have an in-home uh, water tap, like you or I would expect. And some of the evaluation <coughs> has highlighted some of these health impacts uh, and determinants. And one thing, water is important also for economic opportunities, uh, not just for drinking and washing and, and all those uh, cooking uh, and all those basic things. So we've seen a significant increase in household income and people uh, moving out of poverty. Let me wrap up by saying um, a couple more quick examples. Food is a major hazard, a major expense, I mean, for folks in the informal settlement. Um, uh, some of our findings about food insecurity and health, particularly people skipping meals. Uh, young women selling their bodies for sex to feed themselves or their children. And the lack of food really influencing the millions of dollars going into HIV and TB uh, medications, which are given out for free in these informal settlements. But people, we found, were trading the medication for food or selling it and not taking their meds. Um, and one of the things we started with the Mathai Food Vendors Cooperative, which really brings people together to, uh, uh, to have a more secure supply, uh, of, of food and, and street, uh, street vendor kind of um, network. Toilets and uh, bathrooms, latrines are a significant risk, especially for girls and women, um, and a priority of the sustainable development goals. Again, we did the same thing of mapping toilets. You can see the unequal distribution. But we also really captured the narratives, the stories of uh, girls and women about their, their experiences. We partnered with groups like Amnesty International to really raise the profile globally uh, about these experiences. And these are about uh, fear of rape uh, and sexual violence around an unlit, unsafe toilet, especially at night. Um, we got quite a bit of international attention to this. Uh, one of the smartest things I did was to get a journalism student to be part of our project from UC Berkeley, and he went on to work for uh, The Guardian. This is an article from The Guardian, then Reuters. Um, and this led to the first civil action lawsuit by over 20,000 slum dweller women against the government. The Kenyan Constitution provides a guarantee of the right to safe water and sanitation, uh, and they're challenging that, that, uh, that right with this, um, uh, with this lawsuit. So, 
What does this all mean? Well, part of what I think the common threads that run through Richmond, Medellin, Nairobi, um, is the idea of moving from kind of this transactional work that we often do in public policy and definitely in public health, one risk at a time, one sector at a time, this fragmentation, to this integration and uh, what I call kind of multidimensional or transformative uh, planning and, uh, and policy making. It can happen, uh, and I think um, some of these examples, and there are many others from around the world, <clears throat> begin to kind of frame how this can happen. Um, the reorienting the face of the state in urban poor, particularly communities of color, is critical. From a police and confrontational face of the state to one that invests and engages and values people, all people as experts and as um, citizens, is a critical transformation, I think, here. Um, we need to think about how do we institutionalize this? How do we go from the boutique, small-scale projects to uh, scaling up and changing policy, like health and all policies, so that when the political winds change or the community groups change or the govern government changes, there's still that structure in place, and it's very, uh, very challenging. And I think we need to rethink how we uh, combine these innovations in science and technology, um, how we kind of learn as we go and adapt uh, and um, kind of monitor and track what we're doing and feed that back into some of these policy and planning uh, innovations to ensure that we're really delivering health and equity uh, for those uh, in cities most in need. So thanks, I'll stop there. Great, thank you. Great, well we've got some time for uh, Q&A and there's probably a mic or two. Yeah, I see, so if you just wanna raise your hand. You're just here, this gentleman. That was terrific, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I was struck back to um, Richmond when you had that chart that spoke to outcomes that you'd mentioned asthma rates had gone from 26% to 7%, I think. And I guess I'm just wondering if you could say a tiny bit more about that. I mean, I, I assume implicit in that outcome is the role of stress and sort of family dynamics in public health. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, right. Those are emergency department visits, yeah. Um, I would like to take all the credit for that reduction, but yeah. Uh, I think it's a combination of things. So there was um, a reduction in, well, there was an increase in, for, for example, affordable housing and healthy housing, which was a program that I didn't mention, which was about improving the quality of both public housing and Section 8 uh, housing uh, where folks were living. There was a lawsuit against Chevron to reduce its emissions. They were trying to process heavy crude from the Canadian tar sands. That lawsuit was both from community groups and the city of Richmond to stop that processing. Uh, there was a four or five year uh, negotiation, major lawsuit, which resulted in a community benefit agreement and it did stop um, processing of heavy crude at, uh, in, in Chevron. Uh, I do think it's also from a reduction in, in stress, both kind of the violence and also an improvement in schools. So we started with the Richmond Health Equity Partnership and the engagement of the school district, health academies in every school. So these are kind of reintegrating nurses and health social workers and there's a lot of trauma 
young people are, you know, experiencing a lot of trauma, whether it's in-home violence, street-level violence, violence in the schools, etc. So a whole kind of trauma uh, program and restorative justice within the school system came out of this work, which I didn't talk about, but I think, so those are some of, I think, contributors. I don't have the causal model of that, but I, I would argue that those contributed to the reduction in asthma ER visits. Yeah. 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 Oh, sorry. Just wait for the mic. Thanks. So my question is that, like, from based on the Richmond case, it's very community engagement. We see a lot of empowering the people, um, and I'm from from what you discussed and what we you did we did in um, Colombia or in Kenya. Both of them are more planning angle, more um, top down kind of infrastructure planning, at least from what I'm perceiving, and I wanted to know, I hope that you can talk more about how you engage the community in that case, and how, um, at least, how, like, how did you come about identifying, like, public, um, cre creating the public infrastructure into public space, and, like, was that something that the community want or need, or identify at the earlier stage? Yeah, good question. So, uh, in all three cases, I would say that it, um, there's a common thread of what, um, we call kind of co-production. So it's community members organizing and defining priorities, uh, and those are civil society groups, coalitions that I mentioned in Richmond, also in Nairobi, and also in Medellin, although I didn't focus on it as much. I think uh, there is a stronger role of the state definitely in Latin America than in the U.S. or in, in Kenya. Yeah. You've been listening to ASHCAST, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media at Harvard Ash. <laughs>